Hello everyone. Here's a quick word with Adam from Firehouse Training. Hey Adam. Hey Scott, how's it going? It's going good man, you? Good brother, good. So you and I have been talking this past week about how to stay motivated during the pandemic. So you decided to write a blog about it for me. Do you want to tell me about it? The one thing that I'm seeing right now is a lot of people right now are trying to live each day simply waiting for life to happen to them. But from what I'm seeing from a lot of the students, they're really trying to take this time to better themselves, either by taking courses or reading books or focusing on their fitness to try to make things a little bit better. One thing I was thinking about was a lot of recruitments now are delayed. So where some aspiring firefighters might have missed out on recruitment, now they've got that year to get some stuff under their belt. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, right now, it's about taking advantage of the time, talking to some of the students and, and even some of the career firefighters out there that are planning on writing for their captain's exam. Take the time right now to continue to read your books, continue your daily workouts, take some online training courses as well. Try to do something each and every day to enhance that path. So you've been offering some online training a few times a week. How's that been going? Actually, it's been a ton of fun, Scott. We've been offering these free Zoom online training sessions. We're having career firefighters from all over Canada. We had a couple from the U.S. as well as our current core of aspiring firefighters. And we're discussing different topics, everything from uh, spill response procedures to how firefighters are coping with the COVID-19 pandemic. This week, we're actually running one on high-rise firefighting. And the way these sessions usually go, especially with all the experience, they're definitely giving each and everybody a chance to speak and share some of their experiences from the different fire departments that they work on from across Canada. We've put up on social media about an event you've decided to run in the fall. Tell me about that. Firehouse training, along with Multiple Calls podcast, and also Inner Fire Academy, we've all teamed up. And we're going to put on a huge mental health empowerment and recruitment coaching summit. So that's going to take place sometime this fall, focusing on a one-day workshop. We're gearing it towards all emergency services. Uh, it's just going to be a good day. We're going to have guest speakers, some door prizes, free swag. Looking forward to getting together with everybody and just help empower everybody, especially when it comes to their mental health. So how can people register for the weekly online training? And then how can they best stay in the loop for the fall summit? Yeah, the best way to reach out to us regarding our weekly free Zoom fire training sessions would be to follow us on social media, either our Instagram page at Firehouse Training, Twitter at Firehouse Train One, or any of your multiple calls, social media areas as well. They can either uh, email me or just direct message me through any of our social media accounts. Uh, we can go ahead and put them on the list. As far as the event goes for the fall, right now I recommend that everybody signs up for our mailing list via our website at firehosetraining.ca. We're going to be providing updates as the year progresses. Right now we have flyers that's going around that discusses a few of the topics that are going to take place. So they visit the Firehouse Training website under news and events. You'll be able to see a, a little bit more details. I'm hoping for a great turnout. There's definitely going to be something for everybody at this event in the fall. So beyond the free online Zoom sessions you're running each week, you also have some online training coming up. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, we actually have a big course running on Saturday, May 16th. That's going to be a half-day live Zoom fire training course on strategies against terrorism for the fire and emergency services. This course developed a few years ago. It's geared towards current career firefighters and emergency services staff, whether you're police or paramedics, and even aspiring firefighters. What's involved is different topics when it comes to terrorism in Canada and some of our interagency standard operating procedures when dealing with 
fire police and paramedics. We also have some advanced terrorism awareness techniques and also some incident management training when it comes to dealing with large-scale emergencies such as chemical, biological, or, or radiological type events. We're running it from 9 until 1 p.m. The cost is $150, and if you are interested in registering, you can just register on our website at firehosetraining.ca. We've gotten a lot of great feedback from this course in the past, and the fact that we can now run this uh, in an online training platform is going to be fantastic. Well, I'm blown away that you get as much done as you do in a day and you still manage to get some sleep. The content you've been putting out for everybody across the country is just fantastic. And I'm looking forward to what you have cooked up for June. I appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. We'll chat next month. All right. See ya. Welcome to episode 25 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. Do you know any angry people? They're not angry with someone or something. Anger is their first and second reactions, possibly followed up with cynicism, pessimism, and a dash of frustration for everyone and everything. Maybe you've been around them for 15 years and you've never known them to be any different. Perhaps knowing their story it even seems completely justified. If I had that journey, I'd be angry all the time too. Maybe they've been angry day after day for so long that they can't even remember feeling any other way. That's just John isn't a dismissive comment on the past and present. It's a factual statement about those and about the future. It has become who they are. And if nothing is done, it will always be them. If they could go a year feeling a normal range of emotions, some joy, some lightness, some sadness, some anger, wouldn't they be doing everything in their power to never go back? There is the crux. We can't make someone feel and experience a difference to create the powerful internal desire to hold on to it. They have to choose to leave who they were and are behind and transform into something completely new when it is the hardest to feel hopeful and life continues to offer reasons to crawl back in. It's no small feat. It is a giant leap of faith to chart and hold an unknown course with an uncertain destination. And not only is the crucible incredibly difficult, When you come out the other side, you must contend with the feelings that come with looking back over years that you could have experienced life differently. My guest this episode had the social and self-awareness to realize what she was experiencing could be different and did the internal work to change it and has continued on to meet people where they are at with genuine care, empathy, and enthusiasm to be healthier physically and mentally. Here's my talk with Annette Zapp. I'm going to tell you my Canadian sorry story. Okay. I went to speak at Brandon University in October, and they're like, do you mind taking the shuttle from Winnipeg? Like, we have to teach and whatnot. So I said, that's fine. No big deal. I get into Winnipeg, and it is cold as you know what. And my coat is in my suitcase, which is in the back of the shuttle. So I'm sitting in the back seat of the shuttle shivering, and this really nice Canadian guy with a mullet, (laughs) like a 80s mullet, says to me, oh my gosh, you're cold. He took off his coat and he insisted that I put his coat on. And after I put his coat on, he said, sorry, it's not very heavy. I'm like, (laughs) dude, you just took the coat off of your body and gave it to me and you're apologizing. That is not good enough. (laughs) I know. It was amazing. We talked the whole trip. He's a super nice guy. Always want to be people pleasers. Right. And it's funny because I say sorry, but this guy said sorry. Sorry, yeah. 
Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting. Um, Mark Alone, do you know him, The Fire Inside? He has an IG page and a blog. And anyways, I did an episode with him and we'd only ever texted or emailed. And then I got the phone with him and, you know, he's got a thick Southern accent. I'm like, oh, it's funny when you, A, don't see people, their face or hear them, right? And then I don't know why you picture them in a certain way or hear them in a certain way. And then all of a sudden you actually do meet them or listen to them and it throws you for a moment. It's a weird thing. Yeah. Was that your last guest? Uh, yeah. 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 I listened to some of that. Nice. Okay. You want to get started? Okay. Let's do it. Let's start with where you're originally from and tell me about your family and your upbringing. I have a very small family. My mom and dad were very young when they had me. My dad was 19 and my mom was 21. And I was an only child for eight years. And then along came my brother eight years later. So I joke around. I say either he was an oops or I was an oops. Right. But one of us must have been an oops because you don't usually spread out children eight years apart. Uh, I was born in a small town in South Dakota in Madison. South Dakota is where my parents grew up. We lived there for, I don't think, a very long amount of time before my parents started a long habit of moving around. So we moved from South Dakota to Colorado, and my mom was a grade school teacher. In fact, my mom was my first grade teacher. My dad did a few different jobs, and I was real small, obviously, at the time, so I don't remember the exact order of these jobs, but I know he was a bus driver, and he owned a service station. I believe it was a standard service station. My dad also eventually worked for the company Union Carbide. He was initially a uranium miner, and then through a, a series of, I guess it would be promotions, he got a job in the purchasing department. Somewhere in that midst, my parents moved to another town that was fairly close, so commuting distance. And then at one point, my dad took another promotion and we moved to Utah. So it's a little unclear to me, and I don't even remember the ages of all of these movements, but I eventually went to three different grade schools because after Utah, we moved to South Dakota and I started the fifth grade in South Dakota. And then Unfortunately, I went to three different high schools. So my younger years were just a series of getting settled, making friends, and then picking up and heading out. So eventually, halfway through my junior year, my parents moved to a small town in South Dakota called Salem. They bought a hardware store, and they have been there. I want to say I just got their 30th anniversary pizza cutter from owning the hardware store for 30 years. So that's kind of my upbringing. What impact did it have on you moving so much? Oh my gosh. Yeah, so here's the thing. I became awesome at making new friends because I had to do it all the time. But what I became really terrible at is conflict resolution. My parents weren't a real big fan of conflict as it was. And so I never learned that we could get in a fight, have a conflict, and then resolve it and come back together. I never learned that process. And I didn't learn it with my friends either because I would make new friends. And then if we had any sort of a conflict, I knew that I really didn't have to resolve that conflict because I was going to be moving on pretty soon. So 
it's definitely a character flaw that it took me years to overcome. And in fact, I was probably in the fire service a good five years before I learned how to resolve conflict. And then now looking back over those five years, you can sort of see how it could have been done differently? Absolutely. I would come home most shifts when I was a new firefighter and either be just absolutely livid, so angry, or just super sad because you know how the fire service is. Everyone has the best way of doing something and they want to tell you you're wrong. Well, for someone that doesn't know how to resolve conflict or basically had no interpersonal skills, having every person in the firehouse tell you every day that you were wrong, it wasn't easily digested. Just that ability to disagree with someone and stand up for myself and say, I don't care how you think the best way to start the size. This is how I do it. Move along. That was revolutionary for me. It changed my career. So do you see this now in other people? You must have a really keen awareness of it and see it come up. I do, but here's the thing. No one is as bad at it as I was. I mean, even the people that I see that are not great at it are 10 times better at it than I was. I was very, very terrible. Let me tell you, terrible. But how great that you were able to come in to realize how to rectify it. I think that I would not have made it much longer in the fire service if I hadn't. Even little things that you would think, why would that even bother you? It was so cumulative because I took it so personally. So every person that told me I was wrong or I was stupid or whatever, I believed that and I internalized it. So yeah, I wouldn't have lasted long in the fire service if I didn't figure it out. Would you hold grudges too? Would it last? Well, it wasn't so much that I would hold the grudge, but I would assume assume that the other person was holding a grudge. So to me, it meant every time I had an argument with every crusty old firefighter, it meant, well, there's another one that's not my quote unquote friend anymore. I've made another enemy. But what I learned by watching, I could watch two firefighters go face to face, head to head, fingers pointing at each other's noses, screaming. And they would come back the next shift and it would be like nothing happened. <laughs> so I think for me, that was the light bulb that finally went on. I was like, oh, I get it. We can disagree and we don't have to hate each other and we don't have to stop working together. We can all have our own opinions and it's fine. And it sounds so silly, but that's the life I live. So you came to the realization yourself by watching other people. It wasn't anybody that mentioned it to you or sort of mentored you to make the change. No, I think it was just watching the other people and finally realizing, ah, I get it. Because I had so little ability to be in conflict. I avoided it so much. I don't think anyone would have ever even noticed like, oh, and that's not good at conflict because I would just turn tail and run if it was possible. Right. So this is all happening internally. Precisely. What about athletics and hobbies as a kid? What were you into? Well, I remember being little and my parents having the matching his and hers bikes and my dad having one of those little people mover things on the back of the bike that I don't know, they don't seem safe to me at all because it's like having someone on the back of a motorcycle. But I remember going on bike rides with my parents and I remember being of the age of finally getting a bike and trolling around the neighborhood in my bike. But 
in terms of doing things like little league sports and soccer and things like that, I was never involved in those things as a little kid. I took gymnastics, or I guess it would be called tumbling. When I was pretty small, I was probably five or six years old. And I was okay, I guess, at it. But as someone that ended up to be a pretty tall female, gymnastics was not in the cards for me. So when you think about the fact that I never played soccer, I never played, you know, a ball sport, if you will, I didn't develop any hand-eye coordination and I didn't develop any of those, what we call long-term athletic development skills. So even body awareness and people to this day will throw a set of keys at me and I'll miss like a blind dog with a treat. So I think they do it now to be funny. Like, watch this. Look how bad the lieutenant is. (laughs) So if I can give a take-home message to your listeners, you got to get your kids involved in sports at a young age for lots of reasons, but for nothing else, just for their own coordination and ability to develop their bodies. But when I was a fifth grader, we moved to South Dakota and we moved to a farm where we lived for a few years. And the farm was a couple miles outside of town. So that is truly where I believe I started to get my athletic development because even as a young child, I was carrying heavy buckets and I was up and down the ladder to the hayloft and I was throwing bales to feed the cows and to bed the stalls and all those kinds of things. And so I think I started to make up for what I lost by living on a farm. But I did run track and field starting in the seventh grade. And I was a pretty decent track and field athlete for the amount of application that I put into it. You mentioned music and reading. So I've pretty much always been a reader. I guess I would credit my mom for this. When I was turning a year old, my mom's sister said, when am I going to get this baby? She wanted to get me a nice gift. And my mom said, Marie, I don't even think she's going to know the difference. Get her an empty box and wrap it up. I don't care. She's one year old. She doesn't need anything. My aunt was also a school teacher. And so she went to the book fair and she got probably 15 little books for me. She wrapped them up. She brought them to my birthday party. And I was an interesting little kid. I walked really early and I talked really early. And so she presents this present to me at my one year birthday party. And I open it up. Remember, my mom said, get her anything. She's not going to care. And my eyes got all bright. And I said, books, Aunt Marie, books. I was so excited. I couldn't have been more excited about this gift. So my mom told my aunt to get me books at a year old. By 18 months old, I was reciting the books. So I obviously couldn't read, but I knew when to turn the page. So I would open the book, I would recite the page from memory, and I would turn it. And then I remember being, you know, five and six and seven and eight years old, and my mom would take me to the library, and you could only check out 12 books at a time. And so I would check out 12 books, I would go home, and within two to three days, my mom would have to take me back to the library again, because I had read them all. And we're talking Nancy Drew mystery books, so I don't know, a couple hundred pages. So I was definitely an academic, even as a child. 
people tend to learn in key ways for them. Reading and auditory are those sort of the best two ways to get information into your brain. Absolutely. I need to read it. Uh, these electronic books don't work for me because I need to read it. I need to highlight it. I need to write in the margin. And then, yes, if I can hear someone lecturing it to me, that's fabulous. And what about piano lessons? <laughs> I wanted desperately to take piano lessons. Again, these ages are so fuzzy, but I think I was probably around five years old. And I begged and I begged and I begged to take piano lessons. And my mom and dad finally said, fine, you know, you can take piano lessons, but you have got to apply yourself. This is not going to be a thing where we're going to be messing around. You need to apply yourself. And so I have that aptitude for music. In fact, I think I have very close to perfect pitch. So it's interesting. Sometimes I'll be driving down the tollway and in a song, all of a sudden I'll start to panic a little bit. And then I'll realize in the song have been the tones similar to our station dispatch tone. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. So I had this aptitude for music and I was pretty good. Like I'm five and I'm progressing and I'm doing really well. And so my mom obviously sees that I have a talent and they're spending this money on these piano lessons. And so my mom started to force and enforce the practicing, meaning you will practice every day, which, yeah, if you want to hone a skill, you need to practice every day. It makes sense to me now, but you will practice every day. You will practice for a half hour. I'm going to set the timer. You need to sit there and practice until the timer goes off. Well, it became really not fun really quickly. So I'm not sure at the exact age where I finally griped and groaned enough to stop taking piano lessons. And my mom and dad said, you will regret this. <laughs> and I said, I don't care. And guess what? Right. I regret it. <laughs> I regret it. But I had um, quite an aptitude for music. And so throughout junior high and high school, I played a multitude of different instruments. Every year in marching band, my marching band instructor would be like, well, what do you want to learn how to play this year? So I'd play something else in marching band. And I also developed an affinity for singing. So I did a lot of singing in high school. And in fact, I did a lot of singing in college, did a few weddings and things like that. Not the wedding singer at the <laughs> dance, but the singer at the ceremony. Awesome. What was your school and academic career path? Oh my gosh, this is kind of a sad story. I was 100% for the longest time committed to a career in law enforcement. I wanted to be federal law enforcement and very specifically, I wanted to be an FBI agent. And so every kind of step I took academically, I was trying to put myself in that position to go through the competitive process of being hired at the FBI. And I'm going to date myself a lot, but in the late 80s and early 90s, I believe there were five main ways that you could be considered for the FBI. And I may not be able to spit them all out, but I think I can get most of them. If you had a law degree, so if you were an attorney, if you had the ability to speak 
multiple foreign languages, especially Middle Eastern languages. If you were a computer specialist, which read between the lines, hacker. If you had a degree in social sciences or social studies type things, and wow, I'm going to get them all. If you had a degree in science, those were the basic five criteria that they would take you into the process. And the thing with the degree in science was you needed a bachelor's degree and three years of work experience or a master's degree. So I figured, let's go with the bachelor's degree. I'll get the three years of work experience. Boom, I am there. So I, in four years, got a degree in biology with a minor in chemistry. And I don't know how it is in Canada, but in the United States, you can't get a job with a degree in biology. You could possibly get a job, say, at the Bureau of Land Management or something like that. But there was no way I was going to be able to get a job with a bachelor's in biology and a minor in chemistry. So back to the drawing board. Choice is bachelor's plus three years of experience or master's. How convenient. I was at the University of South Dakota. Right across the street was the University of South Dakota School of Medicine, and they offered PhDs in um, genetics and biochemistry and all kinds of different disciplines through their medical school. And so I applied for and was accepted into a PhD program in biochemistry. I thought, you know what, who cares about the master's? I'm going to blow past them. I'm going to get a PhD. And so I started working on my project and research was interesting to me. I had a research assistantship, which means my school is paid for by doing research as opposed to teaching. It was interesting to me, but I started to realize that it was going to be real tough to stick it out and get a PhD in five to six years. And so I went to my advisor and I said, is there any way that I could get a master's out of this? And she said, well, we don't really offer master's degrees, but let me see what I can do. And she was able to pull some strings and I was able to be one of the first graduates with a master's degree in biochemistry at the University of South Dakota School of Medicine. And so I'm super excited. I've got my degree. I'm going back to the FBI and we start through the process. And one of the things that the FBI required at that time was vision not worse than 2040 uncorrected. And further, they didn't allow any of the corrected surgeries. So this is now 1995. RK had just come on the scene as a corrected surgery. And the FBI said, or the federal government said, nope, we can't allow that because it's too untested. We're not sure what's going to happen. So what that meant for me was I wasn't getting a job with the FBI. And now I have a master's in biochemistry. Wow. Wow is right. And so my advisor, she was great. I should probably reach out to her and thank her because she bent over backwards for me. She hired me in her lab as a research assistant while I tried to figure out what the heck I was going to do with my life. I had started taking these step aerobics and group exercise classes probably my junior and senior year of college. And then 
by the time I was in grad school, I was actually leading the classes and doing some one-on-one training. I got myself certified. And those coaching experiences, those training experiences for me at that time were so much more fulfilling than my time in the lab. And so I spent about a year working in the fitness field and in the lab before I kind of made the big career leap, which I always laugh. It's so logical, my life. Biochemistry, molecular biology, master's, I'm going to go be a full-time coach. And so in 1997, I moved to Chicago and stopped doing science and started doing fitness full-time. What was your first exposure to the fire service? Whoa. Yeah. So from 1997 till around 2000, I worked in Evanston, which is north of the city. And I lived in Naperville, which could not be further from Evanston. So I was doing this whole commuting thing, but I loved the job. I loved what I was doing, but I finally realized I was wasting my life on a train. And so I got a job at a local hospital-based wellness center in, I would say, 2000. And there were a lot of firefighters that worked out there. Keep in mind, I, I didn't have much exposure, if any, to the fire service up until that time. My grandfather in a really tiny town in South Dakota was the volunteer fire chief when I was little. And I remember he had a special ring on his house phone that alerted him he needed to go to not the firehouse, the fire hall. But that's kind of the only exposure I had to the fire service. But I'm working at this gym in 2000. And somehow, I will circle back to your fire service question, but somehow it came upon my radar that the federal government had changed their hiring requirements. And so they no longer required that ridiculously good uncorrected vision and they allowed the corrective surgeries. So in 2000, I spent the smartest, I want to say $6,000 I've ever spent in my life and I got LASIK surgery and I restarted the hiring process. I was mad at the FBI. (laughs) So this time I decided to go with another entity and I applied to the Secret Service. And the process went really well. And I had an offer. I got that offer late August, early September of 2001. Wow. And then September 11th happened and all of the government entities freaked out. They went on a hiring freeze for a while. My offer was rescinded and I was super sad. And, you know, I was making a good career out of the fitness thing, but I had no health insurance. I had no paid time off. If my clients were sick or I was sick, I didn't get paid. And I started to think, this is fun, but I need to grow up and get a real job. And that's where the firefighters come in. The chief of my department, he wasn't the chief at that time. He was a lieutenant, was a member at the fitness center, a longtime captain at my department was a member, several other guys. And so they started talking to me about the fire service and how great it is. And they told me literally every awesome thing that you could ever imagine about the fire service 
they forgot to tell me any of the bad things, but they told me, you know, we work every three days. Sometimes we get overtime. We have great health insurance. When I started at my fire department, my deductible was $250 a year. That's amazing. We have work reduction days, or you might call them Kelly days, where it's our shift and we don't even have to go to work. We get to drive ladder trucks. I mean, they told me every great thing about fire service. And I thought, I am in. This is perfect. It's not law enforcement, but it's serving others. This is going to be great. So I enrolled myself in EMT school. I went to paramedic school and I had a fairly painless hiring process. I want to say, well, I got hired in 2004. My list for hiring came out in fall of 2003. And I had been talking about the Secret Service in 2001. So that's not a very long time span. I was pretty lucky. And so in 2004, I raised my right hand with my hiring class and we started on our journey. And my journey has been uninterrupted, except for one more stop at federal law enforcement. After the Secret Service, my time was ticking. I wasn't going to be probably able to apply for another federal law enforcement job because the age limit for hire was 35. And somehow it came on my radar that they raised the age to 37. And so I made one more attempt at federal law while I was already working for fire. And I applied this time to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. And I was accepted and I did get an offer. And my offer was for East St. Louis. It's not a great area. And the issue at that time for me was I had just bought a house and the housing market had crashed. So I was going to be in a very bad situation with my house. I was going to be in a very bad situation where I was going to be moving. And so I made the really hard decision to not accept that job. That's adulting 101. I told you that was a long story, yeah. didn't I? <laughs> yeah, those are hard decisions to make. We're faced with crossroads so often. It's hard to know which way to go sometimes. It is. And you know what? In retrospectively, one of the ATF agents who also ironically worked out at the gym where I was, he told me, you know, Annette, I couldn't tell you this at the time, but you probably only would have been there about six months and you could have gone back to Chicago, but I couldn't tell you that because it would be unethical and all of that good stuff. But I always like to say, you know what, we are one good or bad decision, one phone call, one diagnosis. We are literally one breath away from a completely different life. And sometimes, like you said, those decisions are hard and sometimes we don't get to make the decisions. Very true. Tell me about John Sanders from Sioux Falls. Oh my gosh, John Sanders from Sioux Falls is amazing. So he ties into this whole, what did Annette know about the fire service before she started the fire service? John Sanders, he works for Sioux Falls Fire Rescue. He's a native of Illinois, I think, actually. And I was lucky enough to meet John at our Illinois Firefighter Peer Support Network Symposium right around a year ago. And poor John had the tragic luck of, we did a panel discussion and I was on one end of this long table and my colleague, Chris Morella, who is also a fitness firefighter was next to me. And then there was John and then next to John was Jacqueline, 
who works with a company called First Responder Sleep Recovery. So we kind of termed our end of the table team jumping jack because it was Annette and Chris and Jacqueline and then poor John just got thrown in the middle. So we bonded pretty well over that. And uh, John, I had actually met him via a podcast prior to the symposium. So we all hit it off. We had a great time. And last May, I had the opportunity to attend a clinic in Orange City, Iowa, which is close to where my parents live now. I shouldn't say close. It's like a two-hour drive. But in between Orange City and my parents is Sioux Falls. They're a progressive department. And I reached out and I said, hey, what do you think about me coming in and giving a lecture to your on-duty crews? And he said, I think that's fabulous. Let's set it up. And he gave me the address of the station. I probably didn't mention this before, but I had started my collegiate career at Augustana College, which is in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And I worked while I was in college at a fast food restaurant. Uh, It's kind of embarrassing to admit that as a fitness professional, but I worked at a fast food restaurant. And so John gave me this address of the firehouse where I was going to go give the presentation On the day of the presentation, I had it in my GPS and I'm cruising down the street and I'm thinking, this looks really familiar. This whole area looks familiar. And then I realized, oh my gosh, there's my fast food restaurant that I worked at in college. And then of course my GPS was doing the frantic turn now, turn now, turn now. And I took the turn literally on the street where the fast food restaurant was and the firehouse was sitting more or less in the back parking lot of the fast food restaurant. I love synchronicities like that. Right? So I got out of the car, and I went in the firehouse, and I found John, and I said, when did you guys build this firehouse? And he said, well, it used to be a mortuary, but we've had it as a firehouse for like, I don't know, 30 years maybe? So that firehouse was an active firehouse when I worked at the fast food restaurant, and I never even noticed it was there. It was so off of my radar that I didn't even realize that there was a firehouse there. Isn't that crazy? Very. Yeah. So anyway, if you get a chance to interview John, he's amazing. He's also a pastor, and I attend his church online occasionally, and it's called the Rescue Church. So he's great. He's doing all kinds of awesome stuff, and he works with us at Illinois Firefighter Peer Support. What was your recruit experience like? You know... I don't know what you're doing in Canada, but we're not doing things right now. We're not doing things correctly now in Illinois. Before I got hired, so let's say in the early 2000s, you could walk into the fire department with no firefighter credential, no EMT credential, no paramedic credential. You just could walk in the fire department, take the testing process, and get on the list, and then they put you through those things. They put you through the academy. They put you through medic school. They invested in you. By the time I started the fire service in 2004, they had changed the criteria a little bit. You still didn't have to have your firefighter credential, but you had to have your paramedic license coming in the door. Well, within, I'm not sure, again, these years are meshing together but within probably the last 10 years for sure all of the departments in Illinois 
they think they're being smart because they think they're being fiscally responsible, they have started requiring that you have everything. So in order to even take the test, you have to have your firefighter credential. In order to get hired, you have to have that medic credential at the time of hire. So they're no longer investing in these people. And what I'm seeing personally is a lot of department jumping. But back when I started, the first thing we did, we had kind of a week-long boot camp at our fire district, more or less, I think, to make sure that we didn't embarrass them at the academy. And then we were shipped off to the academy for 12 weeks where we did our Firefighter 2 credential, our hazmat, our basic technical rescue, all of those things. And that allowed me such a great bonding experience with those guys I got hired with. All of us are still great friends today. So if I could change anything about the fire service in Illinois right now, I would change that. Stop making these young people come in with so many credentials and start just picking the best people and train them and invest in them. And I think when you do that, they won't leave. When did you decide to promote to LT? Oh my goodness. <laughs> we have in our contract that we have to be a paramedic for 10 years. After 10 years, you can decertify. I had never really wanted to be a paramedic in the first place. For me, it was a means to an end to get hired because it's required almost universally at every department in Illinois. And so come a heck or high water, I was getting off of that medic unit one way or the other. So either my 10 years were going to tick by or I was going to get promoted. I never thought that I would take the promotional exam. I didn't feel like I was necessarily a good leader. I kind of had imposter syndrome, which I think is very prevalent, especially in the fitness industry. You feel like you never know enough. And so I wasn't going to take that lieutenant's exam because I didn't feel like I knew enough. But then one of my mentors sat down with me and he said, first of all, you absolutely know enough. So stop talking about that. But the second thing is being an officer involves simply taking care of people. And I don't know anyone that does a better job of taking care of people than you do. And so I was convinced he convinced me. So I studied my buns off for that test. I really studied hard. I did well. I think I was number five on the list. And it was a list where lots and lots of people retired. So I think we went through almost seven, eight, nine spots on the list. So I'm really happy I did it. There are some days where I just think, oh, if I could just ride backwards and not have to have any responsibility today, that would be awesome. But most of the time, it's gratifying. I'm happy to take care of my people. I think I do a good job taking care of them. And for the most part, I think they're happy to work with me. One of the people that is on my crew right now is one of those guys I went through the academy with. So he's got big responsibility. He's our union president, and he has to work with me. <laughs> <laughs> What's your approach to skills and tactics training with your crew? Do you guys drill often? Do you have the time? You know what, this is a really touchy subject for me because I'm at one of the busier firehouses. I used to be able to say we were the busiest firehouse, but we're kind of tied with one of the other firehouses now. 
And so we run a lot of calls and we've been hiring a ton of new people, which would for me be call or cause for training a lot. But unfortunately, what has happened is fiscally or monetarily in recent years, our department has really clamped down on spending. And so they got rid of our training bureau altogether. We used to have several full-time people in our training bureau and at least one part-time worker every day. They got rid of our fire prevention bureau. We used to have several full-time people and several part-time people every single day. So they effectively completely shut down two bureaus. So now that work has been shifted to the on-duty crews. So let's start with fire prevention. We didn't used to have to do fire prevention in terms of primary and secondary inspections. We're doing primary and secondary inspections now on duty, which takes a ton of time. The other thing is we don't have a training division who organizes and presents drills for us. So they go ahead and put things together in our online training target solution package that we use. But it's a very rare occasion where we actually get together and drill. So the station officer is pretty much in charge of the training all the time. And it's sad because I'm not the expert on many of the topics. It was such a great benefit to have that training division, the guys that were experts on TRT, the guys that were experts on dive lead those drills. So between the fact that there's no physical training division anymore to lead these drills. And the fact that we have a ton of new guys who simply need skill development, it's a losing battle. I'm just trying to keep my head above water and get everything done every day. I wish it could be different. Tell me about your philosophy of life as a marathon, not as a sprint. <laughs> so it comes from my website and my bio. And especially in the fire service, these men and women are literally burning their candle, not at both ends. They're burning it at six faces on the candle. They are trying to do everything. They are trying to work their shifts, have a family, work a side job, take all the overtime. Never mind, like sleep. I don't need any sleep. I'll sleep when I'm dead. That's their philosophy. And what I try to impress on people is that you get one shot at this life. And if you want to spend it working 48 at the firehouse and not taking great care of your personal life and your family, that's a tragedy. So you get one body, one life, and you have to take great care of it. And I heard an awesome story, my friend in Colorado, Scott Caulfield. Now, Scott's a coach. He, he recently left the National Strength and Conditioning Association as their head coach, and now he's at Colorado College. But in November, Scott had a hip replacement. He's a young guy. I don't even think he's 45. He's way younger than I am. And his doctor said to him, I just gave you a new hip. And I want you to pretend like I just gave you a million dollars and you can spend that million dollars in any way you want. So if you want to spend that million dollars and the analogy is doing 600 pound max out squat, 
your million dollars or your new hip not going to last very long. But if you instead adopt the philosophy of, I'm not going to max out on squats anymore, I'm going to do squats, but they're going to be for general health and fitness, not for maxing out, his hip's going to be great for a lifetime. And if I could get firefighters to buy into that philosophy of, you don't have to do it all in one day, you don't have to take every overtime shift, it can be a long and beautiful and enjoyable life if you just stop and take a breath once in a while. I would be super successful at my health and wellness job. You mentioned Brandon Lilly when you were telling me about this. Oh, yeah. Brand- Brandon's amazing. Brandon has, I think, world record in squats. And I had the opportunity to meet him in person at Summer Strong, which is one of my favorite fitness events that I go to every year. And Brandon, he's had 18, 1 8, 18 knee surgeries. Wow. Because he kept, I know, right? Because he just kept pushing and he could not see that it was time to back off a little bit and start living a different life. And so Brandon's philosophy has changed immensely in the last couple of years. And subsequently, his whole outlook, his whole demeanor, and how he enjoys his life has changed completely. There's a time and a place to push like that, but maybe after eight knee surgeries would be the time to say, maybe I should take it easy. But, you know, Brandon was a pusher. And again, he's a record holder. He's an amazing person. But yeah, his body revolted. It absolutely revolted. And yours will too, if you don't take it easy. Tell me about why and how you started the fitness-related businesses you have and under the umbrella of AZ Fitness? I had an epiphany a few years ago. Fitness coaches, especially young fitness coaches, they hustle because they have to. And I told you earlier, I made a ton of money being a fitness trainer and coach, but I was hustling. I had clients at five in the morning until noon, straight through, went home for a couple hours, came back, from sometimes three o'clock till 10 o'clock. It was ridiculous. But because we hustle and because we have that mentality, we also have a can-do attitude. I can do anything. I can train your kid for hockey. I can train your wife for a bikini competition. I can train your sister for a marathon. I can do anything. And I did. I did it all. Probably not that well, but I did it all. And so even when I started the fire service, I continued for a few years working at that commercial hospital-based wellness center and training all these wide variety of clients. And so a few years, maybe three into the fire service, I decided I was going to build my own, I call it a boutique studio gym. It's 900 square feet. It's in my basement and it's pretty sweet, but I still had that mentality. I can train anyone, weight loss, baseball, whatever. I can train anyone. But I started to think about it, and I realized the fire service has a couple of issues. The first one is we are a completely underserved demographic. No one is providing us with services for the most part. So we're underserved. We're also super 
skeptical of outsiders. So you can get the best nutritionist in the world to come in and give a lecture. And I'm stealing this example from my friend, Chris, who I mentioned earlier, but it's a great example. You can get this nutritionist to come in and give a lecture and he or she will say something like, okay, well, what time do you get off work tonight? And all of a sudden you've lost your audience because they're no longer listening to you because you don't understand the fire service if you think they're getting off duty tonight. So I started to realize that I'm kind of a unicorn in that I have credentials for coaching, for nutrition. I have the background in the fire service. Why am I messing around with Pam who wants to look good in her bikini when I have a niche expertise to deal with the fire service? And so I originally started AZ Fitness Consulting LLC, and I had just my business A to Z Fitness and Nutrition, which was kind of my general population. I went ahead and added a couple, maybe five years ago, Fire SQ Fitness, and that's the entity whereby I do contracting, consulting, speaking, and coaching with fire service personnel and fire departments only. Initially, when I started backing off the civilian population, I thought, you know, I'll just deal with tactical athletes, which we use that term for police, fire, and military. And I just got to thinking, this is counterintuitive. You are making a niche market out of firefighters. Why are you adding police and military? That's silly. Don't do it. So right now I have A to Z Fitness and Nutrition, still plugging along a little bit under my umbrella, and Fire SQ Fitness. Tell me about your approach of meeting people where they are when it comes to fitness. Hmm. Let me ask you, can I ask you a question, Scott? Sure. Do you like it when people boss you around? (laughs) I have a really hard time with that. Yeah, all firefighters do. They hate it. They hate being told what to do. Because I think for a couple of reasons. One, because from the time they arrive at work in the morning until the time they go home the next morning, they're pretty much being told what to do, wear this uniform, go on this call, be at this drill at this time, go do this inspection at this time. They don't need any more people telling them what to do. They're also super suspicious and rightly so of outsiders. And I already told you why. You can have a rock star come in and they'll say something that's not fire service specific and they just get tuned out. So what I do with my firefighters is, first of all, firefighters are all in pain. Every single one of them. What pain did you wake up with this morning, Scott? Yeah, there's some stuff going on. There's little shoulder, a little low back, but well, it's hurting, not injured. Let's put it that way. Exactly. Scott woke up with low back. It's manageable. Little shoulder. He's in pain. How much would he love me if I could get him out of pain? I'm going to get great buy-in if I can get them out of pain. And every single one of them is in pain. So get them out of pain. The next thing is ask them what they want to be able to do that they currently can't do. And for some of them, it's super simple. I want to be able to put my turnout gear on without holding on to the grab rail on the rig. Like I want to just be able to stick my feet in my boots and pull up my pants and be done with it. For some of them, it's more complicated or more lofty, so to speak. They want to do 25 uninterrupted pull-ups. They want to touch their toes. They want to 
run a 5K, whatever it is, I ask them, what do you want to be able to do that you currently cannot do? Number one, get them out of pain. Number two, give them what they want. And once those two things happen, they have buy-in. So now we can start talking about performance. We can start talking about body composition. We can start talking about next level goals. But that's meeting them where they are. A guy that has not trained in 15 years is not going to magically start training five times a week and eating right. I got to meet him where he is. Can I get him to stretch every day? Can I get him to sleep a little bit better? Something like that. Get him out of pain, help him do what he wants to do, and then start talking about the performance. One extra point that you sent to me that really stuck out was what would make you proud? Oh my God. That, I have to give a shout out to my friend, Kelly Kennedy. Kelly has been the civilian strength and conditioning coach for Miami police department for 20 plus years. And I was having lunch with her at a conference in November. And I was telling her, I was a little bit frustrated with a situation that had sort of been handed to me and made my responsibility. And I was just frustrated. And she said, stop, just stop. You need to ask this person, what would make you proud? Because people that are overweight and obese or who can't do fire ground activities, they're not happy with that. They may act like they don't care, but they care. So if you can identify with your person, what would make you feel proud? And it could be anything. And for me, I had the conversation with the person and they disclosed to me, they would feel proud to be able to walk into a workout facility area and know what to do and feel confident and not feel like people were judging them for what they were doing. So that was what made that person feel proud. And so we attacked it from that angle and poof, magic. For me, what would make me feel proud? 10 unassisted pull-ups. I'm working on it. Yeah, it just really sets people on their heels a bit, I think. They don't really think internally in that sense. And you make your goal that way instead of making your goals what you think they should be. Right. And I love that you said goals because so many people have what we term outcome goals, meaning they'll say something like, I want to lose 20 pounds or I want to fit in my size 32 pants. Those are outcome goals. And usually those don't work out that well because you have little control over how fast the scale goes down or how quickly you're able to get those 32s on. But if you would instead make behavioral goals, then it's easy to say, did you do the action or not? And those behavioral goals will get you to the outcome goals. So for example, for me, if I say I want to do my 10 interrupted pull-ups by June 1st, and I can't do them by June 1st, did I win or did I lose? I lost. But if I say every day I'm going to do 20, so two sets of 10 assisted pull-ups 
until those become easier, then I'm going to do less assistance. And I don't put a time limit on it. I just say, I'm going to do it. And then every day I can lay in bed and say, did I do it or did I not do it? And if I didn't do it, I lost. But if I did it, I won and I'm going in the right direction. So that's another thing with firefighters, especially the way you set their goals, they have to be behavioral goals because of the way their mind works. The way you set your intention and the way you approach what you're doing makes all the difference. So let's take that now and segue into mental health and mental perspective. Because what I thought about when you're talking about this in the mental realm is you can say, my goal is to be happy, Mm -hmm. but actually happy is a result of a number of other things coming together in your life that have nothing to do with the main goal of being happy. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I can address this from the perspective of a couple of things. First off, at least in the United States, 20% of the population suffers from a mental health issue at some point within their life. But when we hire for the fire service, we don't go, where's that 20% that's going to have mental health issues? Okay, you guys are not getting hired. We're hiring from the 80%. We hire from the general population. So if you kind of do the next logical step, 20% of our firefighters, in theory, would suffer from some sort of a mental health challenge during their lifetime. That's simple math. But now we're going to add to that. We are going to sleep deprive them every three days minimum, and we are going to expose them to tremendous trauma that they will never be able to erase from their hard drive for as long as they live. And so now we have the lifetime possibility of 20% mental health challenge, sleep deprivation, and trauma. And we have this goal that you talked about of being happy. I'm going to be happy. How do we get there? Well, in my opinion, it goes in a certain order. And the first thing is, I'm lucky now. I get to talk to these new employees before they start. On their first day, they fill out their government form. They decide how much they want withdrawn from their check for their retirement near their 457K. And then they have to listen to me for an hour, talk to them about mental health, sleep deprivation, and trauma. And the advice that I give to them is when you leave here today on your first day as a career firefighter at our department, I want you to call and make an appointment with a counselor. And I'm going to give you a list of those counselors that are going to be firefighter friendly. And I'm not saying that you need to have a weekly appointment or even a monthly appointment. I just want you to have an appointment and a plan for your mental health and happiness. So that's goal number one. Check up from the neck up is what I call it. Number two, the human adult needs seven to nine hours of sleep. There is a very small population of adults that have a genetic anomaly that allows them to be fine on less than seven to nine hours of sleep. But most of the time when people tell me I will sleep when I'm dead, I thrive on three hours, they're full of crap because here's the thing they're surviving because they're not dead but surviving is not the same thing as thriving and your mental health 
cannot be in top-notch condition when you're not sleeping. Lack of sleep aggravates so many things. Anxiety, depression, situational awareness, decision-making. Let's tie this all together. Let's say you're already a little unhappy. You're not sleeping, so you're not making great decisions, and you back into a house or a car. Now you're really not going to be happy. Lack of sleep exacerbates everything. So check up from the neck up, sleep. Nutrition is super important, but I could talk for eight hours about nutrition. I'm just going to say it's super important. And the last thing, the research is compelling. You can rewire your brain, for lack of a better term. You can rewire your brain through meaningful movement. And meaningful is on a spectrum. So I would say the least meaningful movement would be go sit on your butt on a recumbent bike at the gym, staring at the TV. A little bit better would be get up off of your butt, ride a regular bike. A little bit better, take your bike outside and ride over uneven terrain where you're actually engaging your brain. So the same example with an elliptical trainer, elliptical trainer is the worst choice. Treadmill is slightly better, getting outside slightly better. So to recap that whole goal of happiness, I think you have to incorporate the checkup from the neck up, the sleep, the nutrition, and the movement. And because we know already our sleep is going to be non-optimal, we do not have the luxury of screwing off with our nutrition and our movement. So you need to optimize, in my opinion, your nutrition and your movement because you have more control over that than you have over your sleep. Once you're meeting those benchmarks, I think happiness is a lot more attainable. So I want to move into how you got involved with peer support. So start with the Matt Olson story and then walk me to your first peer support class and we'll go from there. Matt Olson probably changed my life more than almost any other person that I can think of in the fire service. Matt Olson is a firefighter in a nearby town. He is a district vice president in the state union, but Matt Olson is also the founder of, I think the Illinois Firefighter Peer Support was the OG the original gangsta of peer support. I'm pretty sure. I know that North Carolina has peer support. Wisconsin and South Dakota have it, but it's because of the Illinois connection. So I hope I'm not misquoting that, but I believe that we were the first. And Matt was the founder of that peer support. And he founded it because of struggles that he faced within his career, his personal life. He came to speak to my department a few years ago, and I saw it on the schedule in our target solution schedule. I saw it. It said peer support, and I didn't know what that meant. All I knew was I knew Matt, I liked Matt, and I was interested to hear what he had to say. And I always tell this the same way because it was so impactful on me. Matt started speaking, and I feel like I didn't breathe for 45 minutes because I was hanging on his every single word, because what Matt was relating to us 
all of a sudden made my entire life make sense. I was a happy, outgoing, maybe even extroverted person before the fire service. And a couple years in, you would not have recognized me as the same person. I was secluding myself. I was doing an awful lot of hiding in my life. And I was angry. I was so angry all the time. And what I didn't realize is that I was depressed and I wasn't sad because if I was sad, I would have put two and two together. I would have said, oh, I'm depressed. I wonder why. I was angry. I was angry to the point where I was getting talked to by my paramedic partner. Like, dude, you can't say stuff like that to people. I was talked to a few times by officers for just going off in situations that I shouldn't have. And again, I was becoming secluded, introverted, quiet, withdrawn. And it was from a series of events that happened both on and off duty. But the fact that I never was suicidal, I never abused prescription drugs. I was not an alcoholic. I probably drank to excess on occasion but I wasn't an alcoholic. And I credit all of that to the fact that I had my sleep, I had my nutrition, and I had my training houses in order. So things did not spiral downward like they could have. But Matt talked to us, turned on the light bulb for me. It made so much sense. Everything in my career in 45 minutes made sense. And so I talked to him a little bit about the presentation afterwards. I knew I wanted to get involved. I was lucky enough that my department sponsored me to go to the two-day training. And man, that was powerful. I sat in that training with people in the area that have been hurt beyond anything that I could ever imagine. The stories that they told of their experiences and the things that had happened to them in their career blew me away. But the thing that we need to realize is that these stories aren't secluded. They're not isolated. These things are happening to all of us on one level or another all the time. And so I took that two-day class. I'm on the peer support team. I don't get to do an awful lot of one-on-one -on -one supporting because the anonymous requests are matched by age and gender. And as a um, nearly 50-year-old female, there aren't a ton of nearly 50-year-old females in the state, but I stay active on peer support in a different way, and that's through presenting training that department and also presenting at the peer support symposium. Talk to me about Devote December. Oh my gosh, Devote December is amazing. <laughs> so I mentioned Chris before, Chris Morella from Elgin Fire Department. He was also a presenter last year at the Peer Support Symposium. We hit it off. We became good friends, and we've been collaborating on various things. He has a business that's similar to mine, not the same, but very similar, and we share philosophies on a lot of things. So we end up talking usually daily on Instagram or text, if nothing else. But Chris was at home brainstorming in November because, you know, you would never want to start this early, right? I think it was around like the 10th and he texted me and he said, we have got to do something about this fire service suicide thing. 
at that point in the United States on November 8th or whatever date it was that he texted me, there were 113 suicides combined between fire and EMS that had been validated. And so we threw a bunch of ideas back and forth between each other and came up with the hashtag Devote December. And our idea behind Devote December was to raise awareness about firefighter suicide amongst civilians and firefighters as well. And because mental and physical health are so closely tied, we tried to tie Devote December to physical health as well. So the plan was that we would use the number 113, and then we would integrate that into our training and the people that were participating with us in an appropriate way. So we weren't doing programming for people. We were just saying, this is the number. This is what I'm doing today. You post what you did. So I might've done 113 jumping jacks or burpees. Chris maybe rode 113 minutes on the concept to row or whatever. By December 1st, when we started the initiative, the number was already up to 116. So these people that were participating were watching this number go up during the month of December and they got really invested in it and they got really, really good at sharing the initiative and sharing what they were doing. Some of the stuff they did, it brought me to tears. It was unbelievable. But by the time we finished December, I believe we had 131 deaths. So within just that month, over 20 more validated suicides. And those numbers continue to rise as the Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance gets more data about the year, the number continues to go up. So we've already reserved Devote December as an Instagram handle for next year. And we're gonna start spooling things up earlier this year and try to get even more awareness out there. But the great thing is this meant so much to me. One of the people that was participating in Devote December messaged me on Facebook and the person said, I just wanted to let you know that your initiative, meaning Chris's and my initiative, it made a difference. I started to feel some feelings in early December and instead of just hiding and instead of putting them back in the file cabinet and moving on, I went and got some help and I'm feeling a hundred times better now. So we have at least one success story. That's all that matters. Absolutely. Tell me about your recent appointment to the First Responders Suicide Task Force. Oh, my God. I'm so, this is another Matt Olson story. I'm so honored. I have so many great things going on in my life right now. I feel so blessed. But this one I'm super excited about. In November, Matt, as a district vice president, had the ability to appoint a couple people to a newly formed task force in the Illinois legislature. And the task force is dedicated to helping mitigate first responder suicide, not just firefighters, but fire, EMS, and police, sheriffs, troopers. And so I have my first meeting at the Capitol on the 27th of February, and I'm just so excited and so proud to have a voice because this needs to be heard. This is an issue that so many people are unaware of, and they think that the fire service personnel are some sort of magical race that isn't affected by anything. 
and we are. We're affected, and I am so happy to be able to make a change, I hope. Tell me about the Matthew story. Scott, there's some calls in my career which I know had a severe impact on me, and now looking back, I know that I should have gotten help. I needed help, and I didn't ask for it. And Matthew was a patient of mine very, very early in my career. And we know now, you know, 16 years later, we know that I can't think of a better way to frame it, but I guess a show code, meaning working a non-viable patient for the benefit of the family. We know that there really isn't a benefit to that now. But 15 years ago, we kind of still thought that somehow made the family feel better to see us frantically working on their loved one. And so this particular patient was probably six years old at the most. And the call came in right before shift change. So I should have been getting off and going home. And this call came in and I was back probably gathering my bedding or whatever. So I was one of the last people to get out to the rig. I was on the ambulance that day. And so the engine beat us to the call. I was really new. I was really green. I'd been a medic for five minutes maximum. And the officer didn't know probably that about me. And the officer came rushing out of the house with this little lifeless body and put Matthew in my arms. And I hopped in the rig and I put him on the cot and I frantically started doing CPR. And I'm calling for interventions. And, and I just stopped for a second and I realized that his arm was up off of the cot and my head, it didn't make sense. Why is his arm up off of the cot like that? Well, then I realized that he was in rigor and the officer probably knew that. And I'm sure he knew that. And he probably thought I knew that I could have maybe benefited from a little heads up. Like we're just, doing this for the family or whatever, but we're a couple minutes into the transport and I realized that this little boy is in rigor. So we obviously call it, we finished the transport and I got back to the station and I lost my marbles. I went and I hid in the bathroom and I just cried. I sobbed. I lost control of myself. And then of course, what did I do? I splashed my face with cold water. I made sure that my eyes weren't all swollen and I went out and I was a tough guy. And I followed up with this whole situation. I looked for his obituary on the internet and I printed it and I posted it on my bulletin board. And I know now none of this is healthy. None of this is healthy at all. But I kept that little boy's obituary on my bulletin board for years reminding myself of it every single day. And I don't know what I was doing with that information. I don't know why I was doing that. It was almost like I was punishing myself. There was no chance. I couldn't have saved that little boy with a miracle. But for some reason, I punished myself with that obituary for years. And I'll never forget his name. I'll never forget his face. I'll never forget the smell of the shampoo in his hair. And I didn't deal with that trauma, and so it accumulated. You have an off-duty fire story. I have the worst off-duty fire story. It's terrible. It has a happy ending, ultimately, but I think that this was the straw that broke the camel's back. I was at home, off-duty. I was sleeping. It was in the middle of June. It was a beautiful night outside. 
So I had my windows open and I had gone to bed early because I was getting up the next day to go with my best friend on a family trip to see the Milwaukee Brewers baseball team. I'm in bed, I'm sleeping peacefully. And I was awakened by that unmistakable sound of shattering glass. And so I open my eyes and I see flames shooting out from the house diagonally behind me. And so I sprung into action. I threw my clothes on. I grabbed my phone. I go running to the house. There was a neighbor kind of standing watching. I yelled at him to call 911. I made my way over to the house and went to the front door, opened the front door, and there was just thick, chunky, yucky black smoke down to probably a foot off the ground. So I had the good sense not to go in. I shut the front door. I went running around to the side of the house, and I ran into this enormous gentleman. And just like chest to chest, face to face, almost bounced off him. He looked a little bit dazed. So I said, do you live here? And he didn't answer me. This is in my angry time of my life. I grabbed him by the collar and I pulled him into me and I said, do you live here? And he said, yes. And then I said, is there anyone inside? And he said, my baby cousin. So I went running back to the front door. I don't know how I thought anything was going to be different at the front door open it again, conditions were worse. I run around to the side of the house and I look up to the second floor window and there's two individuals getting ready to jump out the window. I could hear the sirens coming. I'm like, just wait, just stay there. Go shut your door. You're going to be fine. I turned away for one second and I heard plop. One had jumped and then the other jumped. So now I have two people on the ground, both with broken legs. And there's now fire in the first floor window. So I look down, I see the two crumpled bodies. I look up and there's probably 15 neighbors in the backyard watching, watching like it's a show. And so I started screaming for them to come and help me. And eventually they did. So we drug these people away from the window. I hear the air brakes set on the fire engine. So I ran out front and I told the officer, I'm like, there's a baby inside. And so um, I helped the engineer make the hydrant connection. And then I just like, there was nothing else for me to do. So I went home and I shut my windows and I shut my shade because I didn't want to watch. And I went to sleep and I thought, I'm going to get up in the morning and I'm going to go to a baseball game with my best friend. I woke up in the morning and I was not okay. I was not feeling good. And so I called him. I told him what happened and I said I wasn't going to be able to go. I apologized because he had bought me a ticket. I felt terrible about that. He actually offered to give his ticket to someone else and come sit with me. And of course, what did I say? No, no, I'm fine. Don't miss your baseball game. So... For women, sometimes buying things makes you feel better. So I went shopping and I didn't feel any better. I came back and there were some strangers sitting on my front porch. I believe three guys. And they said, we understand that you were involved in the fire last night. Of course, remember, I'm mad and I'm mad all the time. Of course, I got defensive. I'm like, uh, I think involved is not quite the right word. <laughs> but they were from the state fire marshal and from arson task force. And so I brought them in and they sat at my kitchen table and 
they told me the man, the man that I held in my hands and I got aggressive with him, he had shot his cousin, his baby cousin who was 30 plus years old. He had shot him and then started the fire to cover the murder with his aunt and uncle in the upstairs bedroom. Just the realization of the fact that I had gotten aggressive with someone who had just murdered someone minutes before, it kind of brought me to my knees. So the investigators left and I was even less okay than I was previously. I thought about all kinds of different things I could do to try to make myself feel better. And I finally called one of our stations. The person that answered, he was a lieutenant at the time. He's a battalion chief now, and he's probably the best fire officer I've ever met. I didn't hold things together very well on the phone, but he listened to me and he said, stop. I want you to go pack your bag and you're coming to stay with us tonight. And I tried the whole, no, no, I'm fine thing, but that wasn't going to fly with him. I packed my bag. I went to the station. I got there about 8.30, 9 o'clock. We ate way too much pizza. We talked about the events a little bit. We joked, we laughed, and I thought I felt better in the morning. I promised you kind of a good ending to the story. The good ending is that officer made me come to the station, and I think that things would have turned out a lot differently had he not. So I think the reason that that whole thing affects me so much is that I had no duty to act, but I felt compelled and I was helpless. I was absolutely helpless. And, you know, all of those people, those grown adults standing around watching me, it's beyond my understanding why people weren't hopping in and trying to help. I just don't understand it. It's a powerful story that shows that maybe we're even more vulnerable when we're off duty and we don't have the things that we're used to having. It taught me some lessons, so Scott. One of my lessons is when someone says baby, you always have to ask, is it a human baby or a dog baby? Because people call their damn dogs babies. The other thing is, how old is your baby? Because not that it would have made a huge difference if he told me 32 years old, but I was thinking infant. And it made me have irrational thoughts of trying to go into that house. But you're right. The fact that I had no ability to get in the house. And the other thing that really, really sat poorly with me for a while, the ranking officer on the scene went defensive. That was a good decision. But from someone who thought there was a baby inside, who wasn't thinking rationally, that decision hurt. And what a rapid change in mindset to learn that it wasn't a baby, but then to learn what actually happened. That must have been such a quick turnaround for your brain. Yeah, it was. I'm not sure if those officers were even supposed to be telling me that, but I think they could see how upset I was. And they kind of felt like they needed to console me in some manner. It's not a good story. And I still get that kind of weird feeling when I walk by that house. But I think you're right to highlight how it was taken care of and how you were taken care of afterwards and how powerful that is. Only one other time I spoke about that on a podcast and the person that was hosting asked me, how do you think that that officer knew that that's what they should do? Were they trained? And I said, no, absolutely not. I don't think it was training. I just think it's 
for this particular person, it was character. And it was also the fact that he has a brother in the military. And so I think that that sort of military mindset sometimes overflows a little bit. Regardless, it was the right thing. I didn't want to. I didn't want to pack a bag and I didn't want to drive 30 minutes to the station. But it was the right thing to do. I'd like your take on that a bit more. I think people that want to get into peer support or are in peer support on teams, they can get very handcuffed into, I want to make sure I do the right thing or to flip it. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I do the wrong thing? And really the focus should be more on, you know, you're a caring, empathetic, compassionate person. Just be that. Mm. Just because you're in this role and you have this title, you, know, you don't need to be limited to a list of things on a card. You are in this for the right reason and you care. And so just to be you, be you in your way and training helps frame things for us. But if you weren't a firefighter and you didn't have training and there was a family member or a friend that needed help, you would just help them in the best way that you know how. Just with your common sense and your caring and compassion, you really can't do anything wrong. And I think if you remember that you're not being asked to solve the problem, all you're doing is listening to the person validating their feelings and once someone feels heard things get so much better the situation might not change so let's use a lighter example you don't like working with a particular boss in an office and so you want to vent about that to someone and you vent and they hear you they validate your feelings and even though you have to still go back and work with that boss now you feel a little bit better about it because someone else has heard you i wish i could remember the quote we use it in peer support to be heard is to be validated i think that that's it you know unless someone is deep in a crisis i have pills or i have a gun or i have whatever that's definitely an elevated situation but most of these situations are just, I am up to here with stress and anxiety, and I cannot even see a way around this. And now I just worked a full arrest with a woman that looks like my grandma, and I can't hold my shit together. Okay, of course you're upset. Of course you feel this way. I would absolutely feel this way too. Let's talk about it a little bit and just hear them out. Tell me about your first day as an LT. <laughs> it was another really bad day. <laughs> I had some really bad days. Um, you know, it was another one of these pivotal calls that just shook me to the absolute roots of my foundation. And it's interesting. I was critiqued actually on some of the decisions I made and, you know, that didn't help. I'm sorry. This was not a teachable moment in my opinion. But we always operate from the information from dispatch, and it's sometimes a little sketchy. Is your dispatch sketchy or is it just ours? Yeah, they get limited information, so we get limited information. Okay. We were not sure what we were going for. It was someone had called, and it looked like there was a little bit of blood coming out from underneath a bedroom door. We generally roll out with a fire company and an ambulance together. The two companies rolled out together. We were a little bit behind the ambulance. There was room for the ambulance on the street, but it was a cop box alarm. There must have been eight squads on the street. And so we parked remotely in the engine. 
and it took us a bit of time to walk up. By the time I got to the front door, my medic was running down the stairs with a limp little girl's body in his arms. He said, we got to go and we got to go now. And he said, there's another patient in there. He's dead. My driver was still with our rig remotely. I made the decision. I called out for another fire company and another ambulance on the radio. I called my driver up to the scene with EMS equipment. And I hopped in the ambulance with the three medics in the back, the two from the ambulance and the one from my fire engine. And we took off for the hospital. It is not protocol for me to leave the scene, but this little girl was hanging on for dear life and every second counted. And she had her best chance. I mean, those medics worked so hard on that little girl. And I drove so fast and we got her to the hospital and they were not able to save her. She had been stabbed by her stepfather and left on the bed. And then he had barricaded the room and hung himself, blocking the door. So my medic had to kick in the door and push his body aside to get to this little girl. And at that time, we didn't have any sort of peer support system or anything like that. And so the battalion chief and a couple of deputy chiefs came around the station and, you know, asked, is everyone okay? Does everyone need anything? And I said, I would really like to go home. And they didn't actually allow me to go home because I live alone and they didn't want me to be alone. And so they didn't allow me to go home. We kind of dismissed them. Actually, we asked them to leave the administration and we went and got some ice cream. I don't really eat ice cream, but I did that night. We went and got some pie and some ice cream and we kind of sat around the table, just the five of us and talked about it. And the five of us still talk about that call occasionally to this day. One of the guys told me not long after he was in a Target or a, another discount store and he kind of broke out in a cold sweat and he got very anxious and he couldn't figure out why. And then he kind of put two and two together and there was a display of Hello Kitty pajamas that he was near. And that little girl was wearing Hello Kitty pajamas when they treated her in the back of the ambulance. And so things like that trigger people after they've had traumas, which you know. Well, I just think it's wonderful that you were willing to offer up those three stories. I think there's a lot there for everyone to take. It resonates with me for sure. How important was it through all of that, or is it still to see yourself as a survivor and for other people to see themselves as survivors? You know, if you and I had this conversation five years ago, I would say none of that stuff affected me. Like, I'm tough. That stuff doesn't affect me. But I hadn't processed any of it. And so I was just ignoring it instead of processing it. I think now, now I can see, yeah, definitely that was stress. That was trauma. It still makes me sad, obviously but I've been able to grow from it. I'm not happy I went through it, but I've been able to grow through it. I've been able to grow in spite of it. And I do feel like a survivor. And now I have the blessing of being able to help other people that have been through similar stuff. Like you don't have to suffer. That's a big message for me. You do not have to suffer and you especially don't have to be angry and secluded for a decade. I think that 
in the moment when we're experiencing what's going on. It's more of the reptilian brain that is allowing us to, instead of freeze, it allows us to function. But it's that lack of higher processing that causes us problems. And I'm going to get back on the sleep train for a second. We deal with trauma so much more poorly when we're sleep deprived. When you're sleeping, that's when your mind is going through the Rolodex and refiling things. And the more sleep deprivation that you have accompanying your trauma, the harder your growth process becomes, partially opinion. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I definitely feel the most vulnerable or the most needy when I'm exhausted. Absolutely. And you make poor decisions when you're exhausted about everything, your judgment of distance and timing and all of that stuff. So your driving skills and your decisions are terrible. Your situational awareness is terrible. Your ability to make good food and nutrition. I mean, what do you want after you've had a night of getting no sleep? Chicken and waffles, right? Or something equally awful. And then add to that, your body's hormones after just one night of sleep deprivation become misbalanced. And so that terrible decision you made on your meal is also reflected in a terrible way of processing all of that food that you just ate. So nothing gets better when you're sleep deprived. You mentioned how because you had your eating and your fitness sort of locked in, that that helped you cope with the mental side of things. 100%. And you also talked about Speaking to new recruits and right from day one, you frame this importance of taking care of yourself mentally. And I'm sure you talk about physical fitness as well. But talk to me about hiring and the importance of hiring people that are already fit. This is tough because in Illinois, primarily we use the candidate physical agility test to screen our applicants for the physical aptitude to do the job. So If they're able to complete their obstacle course in 10 minutes and 20 seconds, then we say, okay, we can work with this. After that, they're screened by a department physician and they use the NFPA physical guidelines to give them the blessing. You know, you are fit to do this job, but we are hiring young men and women who are already overweight. If you are 23 years old and you are already 25 or 30% body fat, people do not get more fit in the fire service. I spend a tremendous amount of my life dedicated to physical fitness and wellness and nutrition and sleeping, and I am becoming more unfit because time is marching by. I'm holding my own pretty well, but I'm becoming more unfit. And so now we're hiring people that are already considered overweight and obese into the fire service, and they are guaranteed to become less fit. So the biggest predictors of injury are overweight and obesity and a previous injury. So hiring people that are already unfit for this blue collar job, this physically demanding job, makes absolutely no sense. It makes no sense for us as the department, and it makes no sense for them as the candidate. We have to have a better system in place to hire fit people and to keep them fit. And then on the 
already hired side. Tell me about strength and conditioning and how the industry is ready and available for the fire service, but the fire service isn't ready to be available for it. I've been beating my drum about this for a couple of years, and it's funny. I have a lot of speaking engagements about firefighter fitness that are geared towards strength and conditioning professionals. And what I'm telling those professionals is that your skill set is good. You're ready for the fire service. You're not ready for the culture and you need to learn the culture and you need to learn how to deal with the fire service, but you're ready to physically train them. While I was at a conference in January, I received my third rejection letter from a fire service industry conference about a topic of health and wellness and all of that good stuff. So the fire service, with the exception of the Wisconsin Fire Chiefs Association, I am speaking at that event in June. The fire service is not ready to hear about strength and conditioning. The whole issue, I think, is that the fire service is reactionary. We put fires out. The fire starts, we put it out. And that's how we deal with everything. So if a fire department isn't having an acute problem with their fitness, and by acute problem, I mean something that's costing them money, a worker's comp issue, then they're really not that interested in hearing about fitness and wellness. And so that's the issue. I think things are slowly changing. There are a few departments that have strength and conditioning professionals that either contract with them or work for them. And those departments are tremendously successful in mitigating injuries, getting people back to work faster. I'm hoping for a big revelation in the next three to five years, but knowing the fire service, it'll be 10. But I'm hoping for every single fire department to have that resource on their staff. Do you have any last thoughts before we wrap up? I do. And here's the thing. The fitness industry is very similar to the firefighting, I'll call it industry, in that we feel bulletproof. Thomas Plummer from the fitness industry gives a great talk about financial sustainability and saving for the future to fitness pros. Because here's the thing with fitness pros, they feel young, they feel invincible, and so they don't save money for retirement because they don't feel old. I think that the fire service is a little bit the same way. They are alpha people and they are invincible and therefore they fail to put in place those pieces to take really good care of themselves. So if I could leave any message with your listeners, you've got to sleep seven to nine hours for the adult. You've got to fuel your body intelligently. You've got to move it and you've got to take care of your brain. I really, really appreciate you doing this, and you've been putting yourself out there so well on numerous podcasts, which I'm sure people can just search for your name in podcasts, and they'll pop up, and they should give them a listen. Is there a best way for people to reach you? I'm not very good at Twitter, but I'm on Twitter and Instagram, both as at FireSQFitness. And then, to be honest, I'm also on Facebook as at FireSQFitness. But one of the best resources that I can give you as sort of a starting place, if you kind of just want to purvey what I do, is my website, which is www.firesqfitness.com. That's awesome. Super happy with this.
Love it. I'm so excited. This is so fun. I really appreciate you. You do great work. Thanks. Thanks. So do you. Okay. Hopefully we'll talk soon. Thank you and have a great day.